Well, it's a unique transition this morning from that prayer time to the book of Romans because we're, we're going to ask a question this morning that we're going to spend about nine weeks trying to answer, all right? And so I'm going to set you up for that a little bit because it's a question that's really central to the importance of this book, and it really is this idea of what is salvation. And we've talked about it a little bit. We're going to continue to talk about it for weeks and weeks, so we're going to kind of just sniff it a little bit this morning because it's very central to the gospel message. And what Paul's doing in this introduction is he's basically looking at a people group that he's never had any interaction with. Now remember, if you need any of the backstory or the history, if you're new here and you want to know what the, the Roman situation was, go back and listen to at least the first two messages on the website, and you'll get a full history and understanding of the Roman church and what they're dealing with and who Paul is in their life and all that. We're not doing that this morning, but I will tell you this. There's not much of a relationship there because Paul had never been to Rome. He hadn't, any, hadn't ever, ever had any encounter with the Romans like he did the Ephesians or the Galatians or the, or the Ephesians or the Galatians or the Philippians or the church in Corinth. He had never been there. He had no relationship with them. He was planning on going there. In fact, last week we talked a lot about Paul's heart to go and visit the church in Rome and why he wanted to go, but he hadn't. And so this intro really serves as sort of this, this setup for a trip that he's hoping to make in the future, and he basically lays out the corners of this deep and rich systematic theology so that he lays the foundation for this arrival that he's hoping to have here in the near future. And what we've seen in this introduction is Paul talk a little bit about himself and about his purpose and about the authority that he has. A little smidgen about the gospel in the first part, right? Uh, gospel implications and really about his heart for the church. Heart for not just the church in Rome, but for the big church. And how he loves them and he doesn't even yet know them and he longs to come to them. And last week we looked really deeply at Paul's kind of reasons for wanting to go visit the church in Rome. We talked about his bigger heart for the church and how Paul knows that there's life when you die to yourself and all those kind of pieces. So Paul's done all that to get us to these two verses. Really one verse. It's a verse and a half. But to get us to these two verses, which we're going to see this morning is the theme to the entire book of Romans. If there were such a thing as a key to kind of unlock this entire book that he wrote, this entire letter, it's going to be Romans 1.16, right? It's where you're going to see that I pulled the title for our study from. Everything really hinges around this because it's going to do a couple things. It's going to introduce us to the power of God. It's going to introduce us to the gospel, and it's going to introduce us to this idea of salvation. All of those things are such central themes to the Romans, God's power, the gospel, salvation. And we're going to explore them all this morning, and you're going to see why this letter is really complicated, because it's so deep and so rich, and you have to pay attention to every single word, right? Because Paul's doing something really intentional. So what we're going to see this morning as we wrap up this introduction is Paul's going to talk a little bit about his deep conviction in the gospel, He's going to talk about what the gospel really is, and we're going to actually unpack that a little bit for him. And we're going to talk about salvation, what it is, what it costs us, and what the Lord offers us. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to Romans 1. We're going to be in two verses. If you don't have one, we've got these great new giant print Bibles that are in front of you. Um, you need about a dolly to take it home, but you're welcome to take it with you. Um, we're going to be in Romans 1.16, and we're going to explore the central and theme verse to this entire book this morning. And so uh, we're going to try and do it. Oh, boy. Uh, we're going to try and do it um, the best we can in the remaining time. So if, let's take a quick second. We already did a lot of praying. Let's just pray real quick that God would teach us, and then we're going to dive straight into it. So, Lord, what a privilege to open your word. Uh, Lord, this is an incredible letter. God, it's incredible. 
Uh, we got a lot to do this morning, Lord, because your word is just so incredibly rich. So teach our hearts. Take a moment right where you sit and just say, Lord, teach me. Teach me something new. Just whisper that to your heart. It doesn't have to be complicated or just, God, teach, teach, teach my heart. As you're doing that, take a moment to pray for someone beside you or around you or behind you. Take a moment just to pray that God would, would move in them, right? We say this each week. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Care about the spiritual growth of people around you. Pray for your husband or your, your spouse or your kids or, or that neighbor or just maybe you don't even know their name. Just pray for them. God, move in this person's life. Just do something great. Encourage them. Convict them. Whatever. Just pray for them. Lord, we turn our entire morning over to you. We ask you to teach us through your word, Lord. I pray that my words would be forgotten and your word would stand true. And so, Lord, we ask that in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. All right, two verses. I'm going to assume you remember everything from our past three weeks, and we're going to jump straight into Romans 1, 16, and we're going to look at these two key verses this morning. And this is what Paul says as he wraps up the intro, and then next week we're going to be diving into the meat of the letter, and next week things get real complicated. So that being said, let's jump into 116. Paul says this to end this introduction, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith, first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe, first for the Jew and then the Gentile. What we see Paul do as he wraps up this letter is basically declare, wrap up this intro, is basically declare something to the Romans. Now remember, the Romans don't know Paul. They know about Paul by word of mouth. They knew that he was the guy that was out persecuting Christians, that he was a Pharisee, that he was this sort of legalistic person that had his own agenda. They knew the stories. They had heard as people had traveled to Rome. Now remember, Rome's 1,500 miles as the crow flies from Jerusalem to Rome. That's a long, long way back then. It's actually 2,800 miles by land, right? So it's a long, long way. But they had heard about Paul, but they didn't know him. And so a lot of what Paul does in this intro is basically giving this sort of intro to my heart. And he basically declares with conviction and with certainty that he is uncompromisingly committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he basically tells them, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, it's important because the Romans believed they were better than everybody else. They just did. They believed they were educated, like a lot of the Greek world. They believed they were educated. They spoke a better language. They weren't barbarians. That they were sophisticated. And 1,500 miles away, there was this simplistic kind of intolerant kind of religion of the uneducated. And that's kind of where they would place Christianity. And the reason for that is Christianity believed in this one God and how intolerant and ignorant was that. There were millions of gods and you should believe in all of them. And this uneducated group of people down here are telling us that there's one and the Romans hated that. They were such second-class citizens, the Ephesians. They weren't Roman. They didn't carry with that. Now, Paul, of course, right, was Roman, which makes this really powerful. It's why he ends up in Rome standing trial before Caesar because he appeals to his Roman citizenship. Makes the letter really interesting when we get down the road a bit. But for now, what's important is that the Romans, they were better than Christianity in their minds. 
They were educated. They were sophisticated. In fact, Paul tells the church in Corinth, he says, that the gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those that are being saved, it is the power of God. He's basically saying to all those that are living above it, it looks so silly, so ridiculous to those who are dying, right? It's this kind of picture of we're better than that. And Paul knows that. He knows that to the Latin and the Greek-speaking world, like, they would look at Christianity and be like, it's so intolerant and uneducated. It's just not worth it. Like, it's below and beneath us. And Paul, right, being a both Jewish and Roman citizen, essentially says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, for most of us, when we read that statement, we really, really rallies our hearts. We're like, yes, that's who we're called to be out in the world, not ashamed of the gospel. And we all would sit here and say that. Like, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed. And we wear that with this giant umbrella of sort of this heroic nature, right? Because we want to be in that place where if someone says, hey, listen, denounce Christ or die, we would hopefully say, I, I won't. I won't denounce Christ. Back when we studied Ephesians, I told you about a first century guy named Polycarp who was actually a disciple of John's. And Polycarp was a leader in the early church. He was 86 years old when the persecution broke out in Samaria against the Christians, right? We see that happen in the book of Acts. The Romans decide that they're going to go and seize all the leaders of, of this sort of Jewish sect called the Way, which were the Christians, and they were going to seize their leaders to try and destroy this movement. And so they go to this house, this 86-year-old, it's actually a country house, this 86-year-old man named Polycarp who was kind of a leader in the church in Samaria. And they seize him and they drag him into the city away from his country home. 86-year-old dude, which back then was really old. It's old now. It's old, old then. And they drag him into the city and they basically put him in front of everybody and they tell him that they're going to have wild animals devour him, eat him alive if he doesn't denounce Christ. And the governor of the area basically looks at him and says, just curse Christ and we'll let you live. Remember the story, Polycarp, essentially this sort of heroic recorded by Josephus, recorded in this moment where he just goes, for 86 years, Jesus has never let me down, right? Never let me down. Who am I to blaspheme his name now? And eventually what they do is they burn him at the stake. Now, we all think about not being ashamed as that moment. That's the moment. Like, I want to have, or if I have one, it's got, I'm going out like that. But none of us, not one of us, will ever face anything like that. I mean, I promise you, right? Around the world, people are really dealing with that. But the majority of us sitting here in Oklahoma City, that's never going to be your story. So we say we're not ashamed with the gospel when we use this giant umbrella. However, all that kind of crumbles when the simplicity of things like when what we want versus what God wants don't really line up, we quickly become a little bit kind of looser with our definitions of what shame and unashamed mean. So for example, I'll give you a couple of examples. You ever been in a dating relationship, right? You're a young person or maybe you're an older person or whatever, and you're in this dating relationship and you're dating this girl or this guy and they are smoking hot. They look great. They're good looking. Everything's going well. You really can't believe it's happening, right? You're dating. Things are going well. And they kind of make a statement where they're like, well, you know, I'm not really religious at all. And I don't know that I could be in a relationship with anyone who's like super religious. And they look at you and they say, are you super religious? Right? Well, what do you do? You're dating a smoking hot person. Things are going kind of well. You downplay a little bit your Christianity, right? Because you don't want to mess it up yet. Well, I mean, not super religious, you know, I go to church, you know, I go and the guy up there knows my name and stuff. But like, you know, I believe in all kinds of things. Like we do those things, right? Because we don't want something that we're pleasurable to end. We do it in business relationships all the time. We're in a relationship with guys or girls in business. They're really good at what they do. They're important to what we're doing. 
They're really crass, the language they use, the morals they have, the things that they do, all driven by other things, right? So we kind of cryptically hide our Christianity a little bit as to not get pushed to the outside or not get ridiculed or not get moved around a little bit. We may even change the language that we use and we're around people like that, not the kind of language we would do use here at home or you would talk to your mom with, or even our morals get a little bent because we want to be included in those circles a little bit. And so we cryptically kind of hide our Christianity as to not be fully exposed, right? We do it socially all the time. We have great friends, friends that aren't believers or friends that maybe were ours in college and we like them, they're great, and they're all cool and comfortable with going to church, no problem there, but really talking about a growing relationship with the Lord is not in their wheelhouse, not really where they are, and we don't really want to be excluded from all that, so we kind of downplay the things that matter to us the most. And when comments about, you know, this political thing or that social thing come out, instead of kind of standing on our gospel opinion. We kind of bury it a little bit because we just don't want to be that person, right? We don't want to offend anybody. You know, all those things actually fall under the umbrella of what Paul's saying here. The gospel's not a moving target. It's not something we just claim to adhere to when we're being threatened to be eaten by wild animals. But it's a daily stance that we take to live wholly different than the world. As a believer, right, Paul's essentially saying that the gospel is something that you are, not something you believe in. It's who you are. You're completely and totally changed. And we're going to see that in just a moment. And you don't get to divorce yourself from that when it's inconvenient. So Paul says, listen, I want to tell you about my conviction. You don't know me. We've never spent any time together, but I'm going to lay this out before I get there. And I am unashamed of the gospel. Now, the Romans were facing on a daily basis that kind of ridicule. How can you be a believer? It's so uneducated, so intolerant, so ignorant. It's easy for them to kind of bury it, not just socially, but also because they could die. And Paul basically gives them this encouragement by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, and I don't want you to be ashamed of it either. And not like shame, like I don't want to be seen with Jesus, but shame in terms of like, I just don't want myself to be compromised, Right? So we've got this thing, right, that Paul claims that he's committed to and he's got deep convictions about, which begs the natural question to me, like, what is that gospel? So if Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's an important question because I think that we throw that word around there around all the time. All of us do. But we have no real uniform idea of what we're talking about. And part of that is our fault. It's our fault because we've polluted the idea of the gospel and we've socialized the idea of a gospel and we've attached it to so many things that we have no real understanding of what it is. And we've done this a lot. We've tied it to our social agendas, our political agendas. We've tied the idea of the gospel to a lot of things. So if you say the gospel, I'm not sure what you're referring to. I was driving by a house the other day and they had a giant American flag right in the center of their lawn. Brian and I were both in the car together. Center of the lawn. And instead of the 50 stars... There was the picture of Jesus and the American flag. And I was like, what, what is that? Like, what are, what are we saying with that, right? It's not Jesus was American. Hello, he was not. <laughs> but we attach the gospel to our political agendas. That's a political statement, basically saying Jesus is American or for America. I don't know anything about that. What I do know is that that's what we've turned the gospel into. A series of things that in soapboxes and moral standings that we want to yell on or stand upon for that day at that time, but we don't really know what it is. So it begged the question to me, 
what is the gospel that Paul's talking about? Like, just be real honest and real truthful for a moment, right? So there's a whole lot of ways to do this. And I looked at Acts chapter 2. There's all throughout Scripture. But there's basically some things that I think we need to identify that are part of the gospel that I don't want you to miss. And I'm going to do them super quickly. I'm not going to give you all the references. They're all in Acts chapter 2. But they're also all through Scripture if you just need to see them. But what actually is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, there's really four components to it um, that are kind of a part of this complete gospel message. And then there's one overarching principle, right? So the overarching principle is that the gospel is about Jesus Christ. First and foremost, it is solely about Jesus. It's not about America. It's not about being conservative or Democrat or Republican. It's not about whatever social stance you want to make. The gospel is actually not about uh, abortion or about gay rights or about any of those things. Those are just social agendas that are attached to things, right? The gospel is something wholly different. The gospel is first and foremost and only about Jesus Christ, and it is what God has done for us and not what we can do. That is the overarching principle, meaning you have done nothing. The gospel has nothing in it that is about what you have done, not a tiny little bit of shred. It is all about what God has done. You are hopeless, helpless. I am hopeless and helpless, and we are dying in our sin, and God has done something for us, and that has only been done through Jesus, period. Okay, that's the, that's the umbrella. So the actual gospel message has four components in it after that, right? And I'm going to do these really quickly, but I just want you to hear them because they're going to be littered through this letter, and we're going to pick up on it all the time. But the first component is that the gospel understands that the Old Testament prophecies, right, acknowledge that Jesus is the fulfillment of the prophecy and the Messiah that is to come. So the important part of the gospel is that it's not, the Old Testament is not divorced from the New Testament. The gospel understands that Jesus is the answer to God's redemptive story. That all the prophecy in the Old Testament, all the kings and the judges and the patriarchs, all of those things lead and point to the person of Jesus Christ who was the foretold Messiah and is the anointed one of God. So, part number one, right? The gospel doesn't originate with Jesus in Nazareth or in Bethlehem. The gospel originates with God's move in creation, and the whole of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, points to Jesus. All right? Number one. Number two, the gospel is firmly about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The central part of the entire gospel is just about Jesus, right? We mentioned that a little bit in our overarching umbrella. And all three of those components are incredibly important. Jesus was sinless, and he had a right relationship with the Father for every breath of every second of every moment he was on earth. He was perfect and sinless, and he lived in right relationship with the Father. That's Jesus' life. Jesus' death is that he voluntarily went to the cross and died for the sin of humanity. Voluntarily. He wasn't murdered. It wasn't a trick. Pilate didn't overthrow God's plan. It was a voluntary laying down of his life to fulfill the prophetic move of God that began with creation. And Jesus died for the sin of humanity. And the resurrection, meaning that the story doesn't end there. That Jesus was resurrected miraculously by the power of God, thus conquering sin and death. So what we have is that the life and death and resurrection are all equally important. If one of those things doesn't happen in that way, then the gospel ceases to exist. Meaning if Jesus wasn't sinless, then the resurrection doesn't matter. He had to be sinless. It's part of the prophetic story. If Jesus' death didn't do anything for sin, if he didn't conquer sin, if it wasn't voluntary, if he was overpowered by creation then it does away with God's incredible sovereignty and his power, and therefore the resurrection and the life of Christ doesn't matter because God was not perfect in his movement. And if the resurrection doesn't happen, as Paul says, then everything else we believe is in vain. So that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is the one to come, and he is, it's about his life and death and his resurrection, right? The third piece of this puzzle, all right, is that the gospel really is about the exaltation, the exaltation, and the coming judgment of Christ. 
Now, those are big fancy words to basically say the exaltation has got a U in it, and it basically means the joyful celebration. So the gospel is about the joyful celebration of Christ conquering death. The exaltation with an A is about the authority and power, that Jesus sits on the right hand of, the, of God, talked about in Philippians 2, and his name is above all names, that every knee shall bow and tongue confess on heaven and earth and under the earth. Right? So Jesus is joyfully celebrated as conquering, victorious over sin and death, and he is seated in honor and majesty at the right hand of God. And then the third piece of that is the coming judgment, that the Bible talks about this day, this terrible day of reckoning, this incredible day by which every single one of us will stand and account before God for every thought and every decision and everything that we've been done, and we're going to be held to the due penalty of our sin. That's the judgment of God. The fourth piece of this is that salvation is available to all through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, what that means essentially is that that judgment that we're all called to stand, if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer held guilty. And as we're going to talk about in a moment, there's a magnificent exchange that takes place by which we get the righteousness of God and Jesus gets our sin. And therefore, all who place their faith in Jesus Christ are thus saved. Right. So I say all that to say, well, that doesn't sound real simple. It's actually much simpler, but you got to have all those components to really understand the concept. You are sinful and broken, fully dead, dying. There is no hope for you. God did for you what you could not do for yourself. We're going to see that in Romans chapter 3, that your sin is leading you to death and you can do nothing about it. Mine too. Right. So God, in his infinite, incredible, unbelievable, incredibly generous and magnificent and grace-filled way, from the moment of creation, breathed life into a redemptive story by which he used the prophets and the kings and the judges and the patriarchs to all point to what would come to the fulfillment of this incredible redemptive story that would be the Messiah, the anointed one, the one that was foretold about, the one that John the Baptist would continue to point the way to, that would be the fulfillment and it would be Jesus Christ who was born miraculously by a virgin through the Holy Spirit of God, right? And that Jesus would live a sinless, perfect, and holy life, a right relationship with God. He would voluntarily lay his life down for the sin of humanity. He would die fully and completely dead. He would be buried in a tomb, and then God, through his miraculous power, would raise him from the grave, conquering sin and death as a hero, not as a political hero, but as a hero, a victor over sin and death. He would exalt him to the highest place and give him the name that is above all names, that Jesus would come to judge and be the ruler, and he would stand, we would stand before God. And on that day of judgment, that great day of reckoning, we're either going to be held accountable and eternally punished for our sins, separated from God and what the Bible clearly calls hell, or we are going to have an advocate that stands in our place, a holy, righteous Savior, who no longer, right, is just someone we point to, but actually bears our sin and we bear his righteousness. And by putting our faith in him, we become saved. And that salvation does not just begin on that day of judgment, but begins on the day that we meet Jesus, and therefore we have eternal life from today on. That is the gospel. Notice none of those things are tied to your conservative or your liberal values. None of those things are tied to any of your political statements or whatever soapbox you want to make today about whatever agenda you have. None of those things are tied to a flag that waves above your house or in your yard. None of those things are tied to bumper stickers or shirts or whatever it is. The gospel is independent of all of those things. Now, there are implications that come with following the word of God, but that, those are different and they're not the gospel. All right. So that's what Paul says he's not ashamed of. So when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, he's saying all of that, and he's going to explain it in the next 15 chapters. 
All right? Now, two other things I want you to see here. We'll do these kind of quickly about this gospel message. One, Paul says it's the power of God, right? So salvation, right? He says essentially this, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is a power of God for the salvation of all those who believe, first the Jew and then Gentile. It is the power of God. It's why we titled this series, The Power of God on Full Display. The idea is that the gospel, as I just recited it to you, is the demonstration of God's incredible power. From the moment of creation through the resurrection power of Jesus to the victory over sin and death, God's power is on full display in the gospel, right? It's more miraculous than the Grand Canyon, than all of these things that you think are incredible. The power of God displayed to the person of Jesus Christ is staggering. Staggering that we deserve death and that from the creation of the world, God has set in place a remedy by which he has ordered all things to point to the one singular person that rescues and redeems. It is the full power of God. And it is on full display in the person of Jesus Christ. Meaning Jesus isn't a moral teacher. In fact, he's probably not a great teacher from a moralistic, Greek, sophisticated standpoint. Jesus turned the entire world upside down with what he taught, right? Because his teaching was wholly different. He taught towards the power of God, right? Displayed the power of God. So we have this picture. The gospel is the power of God demonstrated the person of Jesus Christ. And then we have that last part of verse 16 where he says, for the salvation, so that power of God exists, the gospel exists and displays the power of God for the salvation of all those who believe first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So if you've been with us for any period of time, you'll remember our study of the book of Ephesians. We did this Gentile and Jew thing. I mean, we beat it down because it was constantly in the book of Ephesians. And I'm not going to go into it, but I will tell you this. Don't be offended that the Gentiles are mentioned second. The reality is is that the Israelites were God's chosen people. Salvation comes from the Jews. Be excited that through the death and resurrection of Christ, he has grafted the rest of humanity into this promise. But every single one of us, whether Jew or Gentile, which is anyone who is non-Jewish, still has the exact same responsibility, and that is to put their faith and hope in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we become not second class, right, but part of this family of God all brothers and sisters, all heirs to God's throne. We talked about that in Ephesians at length. So the salvation is by faith alone, not by being Jewish, not by being Gentile, not by being sophisticated and educated, not by being born in Oklahoma in the Bible Belt, not by going to church a couple of times super regularly and making sure you made Bible study every once in a while. None of that matters. The skin color, your ethnicity, your birthright, none of that matters with the gospel. What matters is that salvation is yours and is everyone's by faith in Christ alone. Offered first to the Jew because Jesus himself was Jewish and came for God's people. But his death opened up the floodgates of grace to all of creation that anyone, no matter where you're from or what your story is, has the opportunity to accept and hear Christ or hear the message of Christ through faith and have that peace of salvation. Now, that being said, What in the world is salvation? It's one of those words like the gospel. Like, what do you mean when you're saying I'm being saved? I actually had a conversation with someone one time, and it was years ago, who told me they, it was a pastor friend, who told me they didn't like to use that term, being saved, because it had a negative connotation. And it made people feel bad, like there was something wrong with them. And so he didn't like to use it. And I thought, what? Everything's wrong with them. Everything is wrong with me, and more things are wrong with you. 
Of course it's negative because you're God's enemy. Like the Bible literally says you are dead and you are God's enemy and you are sinful and there is nothing good in you. You need rescuing. It's not like you're out there bobbing around the ocean, right? And the the Coast Guard pulls up and they're like, hey, we don't think you're really drowning or anything. You're probably doing just fine or or whatever. And you don't need saving. But if you'd like a little help, we might be over here like, hey, catch this ring. You're going to die. Why do we feel the need from pulpits across our world to not offend people by telling them that they're bad? You're horrible. I'm the worst. I'm a terrible person. Left to my own devices, I am so prideful, so arrogant. I'm a terrible dad, a terrible husband. Left to me. But I am redeemable because God tells me he loves me and has given me an opportunity to be saved from the garbage of my own lying, deceitful heart and mind. And guess what? So are you. So when Paul talks about salvation, and there are going to be an untold number of weeks that we're going to talk about this. So I'm just going to tiptoe the edge of this thing, and we're going to be in it for weeks. Two things about salvation you have to understand. One's negative, and one is positive. The first one is a negative. Yes, you have to be saved from something. Actually, you have to be saved from basically what I can figure out is about four things. Because being delivered from these things is really important, and without them, you are going to die. Sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, but always spiritually, all right? And those things that salvation does, when we put our faith and hope in Jesus Christ, is it saves us, rescues us from four things, all right? So those four things are really, really, really important. I want you to hear them, right? The first thing is that it rescues us from guilt. Not from feeling guilty, but from being guilty, right? So salvation rescues you from being guilty. You are sinful. You are are actually a terrible person when left up to your own devices. You are selfish. You are prideful. You are arrogant. I am too. Every single one of us. Salvation saves us from that guilt. Now, feeling guilty is actually a result of being delivered from guilt. Right? So once we've been delivered from the guilt, we no longer have to feel guilty. If you feel guilty, then you're not truly living into the salvation that's been promised to you. All right? So, so it saves us from guilt. All right, that's what salvation does first. So salvation saves us from that. It also saves us from corruption. So sin corrupts everything. It's its very nature. It literally poisons and corrupts everything. You cannot look into our culture and not see how sin has wreaked havoc on it. Right? The things that our children have access to and are being indoctrinated with is a result of sinful depravity and morality being pushed across culture. Sin infects. And when it gets into your bones, right, into your body, into your house, it worms its way in there and corrupts things. You begin to tell yourself that things aren't so bad. I mean, yeah, a movie's not great, but there's like no blatant sex in it, right? Just like unblatant sex, which is fine. Or, you know, we're not really stealing anything. We're just kind of shifting it around. Or I'm not really cheating on my wife. I'm just doing this thing. We're able to justify it because why? Because sin corrupts. It corrupts the morality and it corrupts our, our heart and it wiggles its way in. It's what happened with David and Bathsheba. You remember the story? On the time when kings were supposed to go out to war, David, the king, didn't go. And he was walking around on his rooftop surveying the vastness of his kingdom. And he sees a young lady bathing. And so he stops and watches. 
right? Remember the story? Finds her attractive. No men are there. They're all out fighting. So he invites her over to his place. One thing leads to another. David justifies it because he's king. The men are out there. Bathsheba ends up getting pregnant, right? So what does David do to cover his sin? He brings her husband back. Come back. I want to honor you. You're such a good leader, fighter, warrior. Stay at your house. In other words, he's saying, you sleep with your wife so that no one will know that that is mine. What does he do as a man of character? He says, I won't. My men are out fighting. I'm going to sleep on the doorstep. So what does David do to cover that up? He sends him back out and has him put on the front lines and killed. This is David, King David, the man after God's own heart. Sin corrupts, right? Salvation saves us from the corruption of the soul, right? Salvation also, the third thing is that it saves us from slavery. Sin is actually slavery. We're slave to it. Like David, once we get into it, it begins to own us, right? Addiction runs deep into the veins of what that is. We begin to be slave to ideas, to principles. We begin to nationalize our Christianity, become slave to ideologies and political parties and things. And sin has a way of tying us to things that we know aren't right and we don't know how to get out of. Even the way we think about ourselves, we look in the mirror and we hate what we see, but God has made that and calls us in his image. Yet sin corrupts, right? And sin causes us to be slave to the images and the things that the world tells us we have to be. And we beat the tar out of ourselves for it. Salvation delivers us from the slavery of sin. I'm free. I am free, fully free. Not to do what I want, but to joyfully follow and do as the Lord commands. And then finally, sin or salvation frees us from um, death. Sin, right, always kills. It always leads to death. Sometimes that death is actually physical. Sometimes our sin will get us killed. You know that to be true, right? Sometimes you do certain things and it leads to your death physically. Sometimes it leads to emotional death. Sometimes the sin that you're involved in destroys your emotional heart and destroys the people around you. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes. But I'll tell you what sin always does is it always leads to spiritual death. There's not an instance where it doesn't. No matter how small, no matter how little, every breath, wisp, piece, blade of grass that is sinful, it leads absolutely to death. If there is one thought of one word and one sentence that is sinful, all of it leads to death. That's why Jesus being holy and perfect and sinless is so important. It wasn't like one little blade. It was holy God. Your one sin, it may not be smoking crack and shooting orphans, right? But your sinful thoughts are just as polarizing from God's holiness. Now, true, sin has varying degrees, and there are varying degrees of those things that break God's heart, but every single one of those things still separates us from God. So that's the negative. And why we're afraid to tell people that, I don't get it. Because it's not saying... That's what you are, and that's who you will always be. Salvation is the promise that you no longer have to be slaved in those things. You are been rescued and redeemed from that. Like, it's the greatest message to hear that you're drowning and that you have a God that wants to save you. Salvation, if we're talking negatively, delivers us from those things. Now, here's the positive, and I'll wrap everything up with this, and I'll do it quickly because we are. Time's, time's a waste. 17, right? Listen to this. This is the positive side of this. 17 says this. <clears throat> 17 says, For in the gospel, a righteousness that now is from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith, first, or first to last, just as it is written, the righteousness will live by faith. It's a complicated way of saying this. 
You know what salvation does? Is it puts us in a right relationship with God. So not only does it deliver us from these awful, negative, terrible things, but it puts us in the right place. The positive side of it is it gives us free access to holy, mighty, righteous God. And the righteous that, that Paul's talking about there, righteousness means basically to be put into a right relationship with God. That's all that means. It means that salvation by God's power leads to a right relationship with God. Now, how does that happen? Well, that's the incredible thing about righteousness is that it happens because you didn't do anything. We've talked about this a lot, and I'll just kind of allude to it for a second, but the, the expression of Christ on the cross and his, and his resurrection is this magnificent exchange. So it's not that Jesus died for your sins, right? You probably heard that a lot, that Jesus died for your sins. He died for your sins. And that is true, but it's not actually completely true. Jesus didn't just die for your sins. Jesus actually became your sin. And there's a very big difference theologically, that Jesus wasn't just divorced from your sin and he died and all your sins sat in a big pile over here and so Jesus died so that big pile of things would go away, right? That's not really what's happening theologically. What's happening theologically is that Jesus actually becomes your sin and you become his righteousness. Paul says that to the Corinthians. He says, For God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to become sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now what that means is that there's a magnificent exchange that happens. That you are sinful. You are not divorced from your sins. They're not just actions that you do. It's who you are. A lot of times for our own mental state, we like to divorce ourselves from our sinful actions. Like, it's not really me. It's just kind of what I did. No, it's what you did, right? And it's who you are. You don't just be like, oh, I'm not a bank robber. I just rob banks. No, you're a bank robber, right? Like if you went in there and robbed it, that, that, that's who you are. A lot of times you're like, oh, I'm, I'm not sinful. I've just done some bad things. No, you're, you're sinful, right? It's okay. Jesus in his holiness, his righteousness, he takes all of your sin and most literally becomes it. He bears the weight of God's judgment. And in exchange, and in this incredible thing that you don't deserve or you don't get, you are then draped with the righteousness of God in which the Bible tells you you are wholly new. You don't just have new things. You yourself are wholly new. You are now the righteousness of God because of Christ, and he bore all your sin and became it. And what Paul's saying here is that salvation rescues you from these terrible things that sin promises, right? Rescues you from guilt and corruption and slavery and death. And it puts you in a right relationship with God in which you bear no resemblance to who you were because you are now the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. So when you look in the mirror this morning, you don't get to say you don't like what you see. Because what you should see is that you were someone who God loved enough to make a magnificent exchange with and took all of your horrific garbage and he exchanged it for his glory through the death of his son. So yeah, you're still going to struggle and those things are going to be real, but you are draped in the righteousness of a living God. It's a magnificent exchange and one you don't deserve. And so when Paul talks about salvation, he's not just simply saying, hey, God offers you something when you die. Like, hey, make sure you say your last rites before you go to sleep in the last deathbed there in the old hospital so that you can find eternal life. That's not what Paul's talking about. Paul's not talking about fire insurance to make sure you don't go to hell. Paul's talking about a complete holistic exchange that takes place in which you are offered real life in this breath. You don't just have to walk this life in a mediocre kind of mindset until you die. 
God exchanges all of that for his righteousness and says, I want you to have a life that you love. And you love it because the things that matter to me now matter to you. So all of that craziness to basically wrap up this introduction to say, this is what Paul's not ashamed of. He's not just saying, hey, look, I'm not ashamed of Jesus. Like, yeah, Jesus is bad. He's like, no, Jesus is good. He's not saying that. He's saying, I'm not ashamed of the totality of this message. And as crazy as you may think it is out there in the Roman or Greek or even in our Western world saying, man, those Bible people, whatever, as crazy as you think it is, it saved me. And it's, offering, it's off, offered to you, like fully offered to you. Why would I not want you to have it? This is the promise that is offered to anyone who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone is not saved, but everyone who puts their faith in Christ is, right? So what Paul's saying is, that's what I'm not ashamed of. So as we close our time in worship, what I want to sort of penetrate your heart is this. How well do I understand this message? And more so, how well do I understand that this message is actually about what Christ did for me? Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of the gospel, for the truth of the message, and for the power of this word. A lot of these things we've heard before, but sometimes we don't hear them all together at the same time. And it sounds complicated, and I know we're sitting here going, man, I can't remember all that. Well, it's not actually that complicated. It's just the totality of Scripture kind of rolled up into this one incredible picture. So don't let us add anything to it. Don't let us place our own agendas or things or ideals on it, Lord. It's... It's just about you. You free us from the lies of our mind and from the lies of the world. That you've rescued us from guilt, from corruption, and from slavery and death, and you've put us in a right relationship with you, all because we did nothing, nothing, nothing. That everyone who has faith in Jesus Christ will be saved. And Lord, that's a message that we're not ashamed of. So close our time in worship. Press that into our soul. Let us celebrate at the top of our lungs, for you are our God, Christ, our Redeemer. Amen. Let's stay together and close our time in worship.
Amen, and super true, but take that truth, right? Walk out of here and declare what you're not ashamed of. Not that you're not ashamed of the name of Jesus, but that entire message which rescues and saves your soul. Check all the corners of your life to make sure that you're not compromising in places. Stand on the truth of the totality of the gospel and realize that, yes, you need to be rescued, and God is just that good. Go in peace.